You're listening to the Mind Your Business Podcast, episode number 224. Today I'm speaking with award-winning author Jonathan Fields on a simple test that can help you uncover your life's true purpose. So, stay tuned. Hi, I'm James Wedmore, and I've built a multiple seven-figure internet business that offers the financial freedom to do what I want, when I want. And I'm the first to say that hard work and hustle are not essential ingredients for your success. So, how do you build a thriving business from the inside out? Now, with over 2 million downloads, this is the Mind Your Business Podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? James Wedmore here. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Mind Your Business Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing my good friend and best-selling author, Mr. Jonathan Fields. And this is a very exciting, intriguing, fascinating episode because he's going to reveal to us an assessment, a test, a series of questions, about 50 questions that you can answer that will allow you to uncover what your purpose is. Like, what should I do with my life? What should I focus my life force on, my time, my energy, my focus, like my being on that's going to give me meaning, that's going to give me a sense of fulfillment, It's going to be something that I know this is what I was put here to do. This is what alignment is all about, living an aligned life. And I'll tell you, me just hearing myself say this, like, that's a big promise. That's a big promise that we're going to fulfill on today. But the concept is called spark types. And in this episode, we're going to go into the 10 spark types, the 10 core drivers that is universal to all living human beings. And you, my friend, have a core driver. Something beneath all of what you're doing is the reason why you do it. And a lot of times we don't take the time to even look at that, to ask ourselves what that could be. And we're going to give you the test. We're going to break down how it works, what the results are, all of that stuff. But I'm geeking out about this because I think, first of all, Jonathan's brilliant. He's been a good friend for a long time. I've had him come and speak at my mastermind and they loved him. And he talked a lot about this stuff, about, about finding your purpose and aligning your life with your purpose and doing what you're meant to be doing. And so I took the test after our interview. So I'll report now what my results are, which is very interesting. Jonathan, we start the episode by Jonathan sharing what his core drivers are, what his sparkotype is. And he has a lead one, which is the maker, and a shadow or secondary one, which is the scientist. And as he was describing this, I was just like smiling ear to ear because I'm like, yeah, that sounds just like me. I tried to take the test without having that information, just like totally neutral. And sure enough, I came out as the maker and the scientist. So that's my type. Now what I'm doing with my team, which I'm so excited, is I'm having my entire team take the test. And what you're going to discover in this episode is really how valuable this this data is. Yes, for yourself, absolutely know thyself. But when you're working with other people, when you're working with a team to know what their core drivers are, like what gives them meaning and purpose, and to be able to give them tasks, jobs, responsibilities that align with that, to put them in that right role, 
you don't need motivation anymore. You don't need to incentivize people because they're doing the work that they love. And they love the work they do. And I just love this. I love this entire conversation. So I'm really excited about this. I know a lot of you have listened to one of our most popular episodes, which is episode 20 of the Mind Your Business podcast, which is Know Thyself, I believe was the name of it, but it talks all about Myers-Briggs personality types. So understand that this isn't necessarily a personality type test, although people love to put, you know, like assess each other and put each other in categories and boxes. You know, Myers-Briggs is all about the temperaments of our personality, you know, uh, do I prefer to be around people or do I prefer to be alone? So we'll link that episode up in the show notes because I think having both of these is going to be really valuable. But what I'm really discovering with spark types is that this is a test to give you more clarity on what drives you, what gets you out of the bed in the morning. And these are questions as entrepreneurs, we need to have some clarity on and how awesome is it in about 10 minutes, you can, you can have that answer. So I'm really excited to introduce Jonathan to you for the first time on the Mind Your Business podcast and have him share with you all about how you can find the clarity on what you should do with your life. So if you didn't know, Jonathan Fields is a dad, a husband, an entrepreneur, and award-winning author. He founded the mission-driven media and education venture Good Life Project, where he hosts the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast with millions of downloads and a global audience. And he leads an international community in the pursuit of life well lived. He's also the creator of the Sparkotypes, a set of archetypes designed to reveal the source code for the work you are here to do. And in Jonathan's latest book, How to Live a Good Life, he offers a powerful framework for a life well lived. And its companion journal, The Good Life Journal, reveals a simple 12-minute daily practice that lets you come alive, not someday, but today. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's Jonathan Fields. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with my good friend, Jonathan Fields of The Good Life Project. Jonathan, how you doing, man? I'm doing really well. So excited to be hanging out with you and everybody who's listening in. Yes. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time and I'm glad we finally got a a chance to chat and start recording. Um, I know. Although I like I would much rather actually be hanging out with you where you live right now. Than, <laughs> a, like you're in you're in the tropics and beautiful weather basically you know, and I'm in like the cold part like wilderness of New York City. We're <laughs> so spoiled out in California that it's like sixty degrees, like fifty seven or something, and we're like, It's so cold. It's so cold <laughs> to stay indoors. Yeah. Um and you're like, what, thirty degrees? <laughs> yeah, I think it might warm up to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. So one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is something rather new that you've been working on, something really exciting, something I'm really fascinated about, and something I also know that our audience is going to be really fascinated about. And this is spark types and discovering your spark type. And I'm wondering if we can just start right there and say, well, what is that? Yeah, good question. Big question. (laughs) So... I've geeked out for a lot of years on really understanding human behavior, why we do what we do. I've taken pretty much every assessment, every archetyping, every type of personality test or profile out there, you know, from multiple different types of strengths to the classic, you know, Myers-Briggs and all sorts of different stuff. And it's all useful, you know, it sort of all goes into this 
interesting hat, but there's one question it's kind of been bouncing around my head for if I'm honest, the majority of my adult life, and I realize increasingly it was really the center of a lot of the work that I've done over the years, which is, and I realize it's the question that people have been coming to me with for a long time, even if it's not what they're directly asking me. And the question is, what should I do with my life? Mm. And when, when they come to me in particular, what they're actually asking me is, how do I find and do work that fills me with a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, that allows me to fully express who I am and to really work in a way where I feel like I'm doing the thing that I'm here to do. And so I started looking around, you know, and over the years I realized I developed a lot of process around this for founders who I've, I've spent, you know, probably a couple decades working with now. And it was always in the context of how do I build a company that does this for me? What I start to realize over the, the more recent history is that a lot of the process and a lot of the ideas, they really weren't just about entrepreneurship and business and founders. They were about anybody. It was about creating a practical, intelligent process to allow somebody to essentially identify on what I would call a source code level, that thing that wakes them up in the morning. And that would serve as the heartbeat or the source code, the DNA of their life's work, of the thing that they're here to do. So if they were then able to align their life, primarily the way they contribute to the world, their work with that thing as much as possible, they would feel the way that they wanted to feel. And so I started to look at everything that was out there. And I started to look at a lot of the process and the prompts around purpose, around meaning, of the broader personality types around strengths, around character traits. And there's a lot of great work. There's a, you know really good tools out there in the market. And But what I realized is there wasn't something that was very specific to this one question. There was a lot out there that was very vague, ambiguous, a lot of sort of spiritual metaphysical process, which is great if that's your orientation. But for a lot of people, it's not. And for a lot of people, it's sort of a long convoluted path. And a lot of the answer that you tend to get back is, well, you just keep trying things for your entire <laughs> life and eventually maybe you stumble upon it, maybe you don't. And if you do, then you're really lucky and then just do that thing as much as you can. Wow. And that never, never really sat all that well with me. So I started working on how can we actually create a better approach to this? How can we take all the sort of the, you know, I spent decades now sitting down with some of the smartest people from academic researchers to founders, to artists, to scientists, to professors in the world, and learning from them, I've devoured a metric ton of research, and I've experimented and, and run my own iterations, both in my own life and also with so many people over a period of years, that I started sort of looking at this mass data set and saying, how can we distill this into a really simple, streamlined process? And the big question for me is, can we actually build some sort of tool? Can we create some sort of assessment? And that became my quest. And what was really fascinating is when you start out in the beginning, you know, if you go to anybody and you're like, tell me what your purpose is, tell me what your reason for being is. You know, the French would call it your raison d'etre, or, you know, in Japan, it would be your ikigai. You know, it literally translates to the reason you jump out of bed in the morning. Mm. You know, and what I found was that most people would either not have an answer, they would have no idea, or their answer would be very superficial. And I, there's no shame or judgment in that. What's like a superficial answer look so like? So a superficial answer would be, you know, I help orphaned animals find loving homes 
in you know like big cities so that they don't have to um, spend their time in shelters. Noble, beautiful, powerful, specific, right? Very specific. And the challenge with that is, is that it may guide your decisions and actions for the moment, but it's granular and it's temporal, mm. and it's it is based on circumstance. And as your life evolves, you know your circumstance is going to change. The time, your resources, your constraints, your abilities, your interests are all going to change and evolve. And if you say that your fundamental purpose in life is that one thing, then when any of those things shift, then all of a sudden you find yourself adrift again because you've never actually gone below that and asked the question, and what's driving that? Mm. And what's driving that? And what's driving that? Until you got to the deeper source code, my quest became, how do we get to the source code? Because when you can go on the level of sort of, you know, your life's work DNA, then, you know, that DNA can be expressed in myriad ways over a period of decades, over the context of the changing circumstances of your entire life. And so if, you know, if I told you my, you know, like my purpose right now is to, to help physically challenged kids learn to snowboard and learn to enjoy outdoor sports, that's amazing. That's beautiful. There's so much grace and power and purpose in that. And yet, if something changed in me physically or emotionally or where I lived, where I couldn't do that anymore, you know, if I said that was my life's work, then I would all of a sudden be left with nothing. Whereas if I understood that underneath that, five layers deeper underneath that, you know, the deeper thing for me was that fundamentally, I had a deep drive, a yearning to be a nurturer, to give care to those who were in some way suffering or in pain. And then I would understand that this happens to be one context-sensitive, time-sensitive, circumstance-sensitive way that I'm expressing that in the world. But if for some reason that changed and I wasn't able to express it that way, there are thousands of other ways that I could find an outlet for that deeper source code but you have to go deep enough to actually know it. And, and that became the quest. Yeah, I think, first of all, I think that piece alone is is really powerful because we see, and I've seen this in myself as well, where you get that purpose or that mission statement that is very specific. And as you described, it, it really starts to get like attached to your identity. Like this is who I am. And if those circumstances do change, people tend to have like an identity crisis. If I no longer do this thing or can't do that thing, who am I then? And I even noticed, observed that, and I see this in other entrepreneurs especially, but I observed that in myself in that I went from a brand positioning shift in my career from being the YouTube guy teaching video and that becomes like, oh, this is what, that, that was my purpose, right? On a surface level that was, oh yeah, this is, this is who I am. This is what I'm known for and this is my purpose and this is what I'm to do. And then I shifted and moved away from that. And what I realized just in, on my own is that there was something, and I really want to dive deeper in these core drivers, and that there's a universal theme in what I was doing before versus what I am what I'm doing today. And it was whether it's video or marketing or anything else, there's a universal theme of just helping people be seen. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's so fascinating. So in a simplistic sense, this is a test or an assessment that allows people to identify their purpose. Yeah, on, on sort of a root level. On a root level. So it's not like you're going to be like, you know, answer all these questions and be like, go be a doctor. 
Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. or it's not going to tell you your career. You right. Know? But what it will do is it will give you the deeper driver so that you can then you then have the freedom mm-hmm. to look at literally any job, any career path and understand how to express this thing in a way that makes you feel whole. So let's let's go dive into that. Like, what is a core driver and are there a certain number yeah. of drivers? Is that like what the responses are? It's like you're one of seven drivers or something like that. Yeah. So, so we ended up actually over the last year taking all this thought process and building an actual assessment, which was an entire journey in itself. I bet. Um, trying to build an assessment that's actually valid and handles and like all the use cases and edge cases and, and is genuinely useful. But what I realized was through this process, when you start out with the surface level expressions, and in theory, there are 7.0 billion unique ones, that's how many people there are in the world, and you keep asking what's driving that, what's driving that, what's driving that, you very quickly, almost astonishingly quickly, start to narrow the set down to 10. Mm. So you literally go from 7.5 billion to 10, which kind of blew my mind. And 10 happens to be a fun, nice, easy number. That was It wasn't my intention. It's not nine, it's not 11. It's yeah, 10. it's like yeah. I didn't know if I would end up with 50, with six, whatever it may be. But I, as when I kept looking at them, and then as the set got smaller, and I would ask, is this actually a subset of something else, or is it legitimate and standalone? Mm. And we really we got to a point where at 10, we're like, look, it really is not a part of something else. This is something distinct. And then we built an assessment, and that was designed to ask people a series of questions that would let them you know, sort of like move through this thing and say, hey, here it is. What I also realized along the way, so there are 10 of them to yeah. answer your question. Yeah. And I'm happy to sort of like walk you through each of them, but maybe like one more piece of context, which is kind sure. of interesting, which is that I also realized that that most of us have have actually two, what I would call a primary mm. sparkotype. And we call them sparkotypes because, well, frankly, it's fun. It's the archetype that sparks you. Yeah. So you have a primary sparkotype and each person has a shadow or a sub sparkotype. And the difference between them is that the primary represents the work that you're here to do. The shadow represents work that you're probably pretty good at. You probably have like a, a decent level of competence and you get joy from it and it's fun and it's engaging. But if you're really being honest, you do the work of your shadow in the name of being able to do the work of your primary better. And as I sort of like, as, as I share each one of them with you, I can give you an example or two of how that would work. So it actually, you know, it's easier to understand. But, but shadow kind of connotates that it's like the downfall, darkness. the pitfall, darkness yeah, of it. It's interesting. And when we were sort of coming up with naming conventions for this, I bounced that around with other, with other people because there are, people have a shadow association that's sort of like the dark side. You know, this is the light side of you and then there's the dark side of you. Right. The way that I'm using shadow is that it's the sparkotype that is in the shadow of the other. Okay, got it. Yeah, so there is no there's no darkness connotated with it, but it's really interesting just to see how people make assumptions about the word, yes. which I'm kind of fascinated by. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, can we start by you sharing what your primary and, and shadow is? Yeah. So my primary sparkotype is what I call the maker. And the work of the maker is to make ideas manifest. So my fundamentally, I live and breathe to make things and in a bigger context to make things that move people mm. that are an, you know, an expression of an idea and even better if it moves people in a meaningful way. My shadow sparkotype is what I call the scientist. And the work of the scientist is to solve problems, puzzles, to discover answers. So, and very often to long, you know, deep, complex things. So 
you know, if you look at that for me, and I, I can take you deeper into each one of these two because there are so many yeah, layers. Definitely. But, you know, just sort of like really quick for me, you know, so if my primary is a, is a maker and my shadow is a scientist, what that tells me is I scan around the world, my life, nearly everything that I do. And the thing in my mind is what can I make? What can I make? What mm-hmm. can I make? How can I take something and ideas just drop from me? I am like an idea. I've been called by my staff at various times an idea terrorist because <laughs> I have ideas to make things yeah. nonstop. It's like a, a valve that does not turn off. And for me and for most makers, this has been my sort of primary driver from the as far back as I can remember mm-hmm. when I was a kid. So when I was, you know, eight, nine years old, I grew up in a suburb of New York City and as a smaller town, we had the classic old junkyard in our town. And on a Sunday, I would ask one of my parents, you know, to get the beat up old Chevy Blazer and drive me down to the junkyard. And I would be looking for old thrown away bicycles or parts. And I would load up the back of the truck with them. I'd bring them home. I'd like pull them down to the basement or into the garage. I'd get out my big honking roll of duct tape. And I would start to sort of like figure out how to smosh and tape the pieces together and I would build Franken bikes. You know, so I would have like bikes that were like six different parts. Yeah. You know, like chopper forks with three forks, you know, you know, like all duct taped together. And I would you know and and then I would go and ride around the neighborhood until I jumped off a rock and the whole thing imploded. <laughs> but the fun for me was just constantly it was the act mm-hmm. of creation. Yeah. And I have been that way. I've been making things. I have been coming up with ideas whether it's books, whether it's media, whether it's houses, whether it's companies, experiences, the central theme, like the through line for me has been a deep sustained drive to create, to make. Mm -hmm. And that has fueled me my entire life. Now, when we think about, I said, my shadow was the scientist. Well, how does that show up in this whole thing? So the scientist is all about problem solving. You know, so a lot of times researchers, you know, classic jobs where you see scientists are researchers or people who are, you know, if you're a cancer researcher, a lot of those people may be driven by this mad, lifelong sustained quest to solve a huge, deeply complex problem. For me, problem solving is something I've become really good at, something I enjoy doing. But if I'm really being honest, I problem solve in the name of being a better maker. Mm. So if I'm making something, and I come up, I hit a wall where there's a new tool or a new process or a new idea. There's something that needs to be solved. Then I go into problem solving mode. I go into, okay, so let me go through basically like a scientific process mm-hmm. here to figure out what I need to figure out. But the moment I've gotten the answer on the level that allows me to go back to the process of creation and dip back into the making process, I'm back. So if my primary was a scientist, I would stay in the quest simply because I was born to be in the quest. That would be my primary driver. For me, a strong sign that, in fact, it's not primary, but it's in service of being a maker is that the moment I have what I need, I'm done with it. Hmm. I go back to the process of creation. So that's how it shows up in my life. That would be sort of an example of how the two work. This is great. And a couple questions there, one specifically for you. Do you find that having a lot of like doing a lot of online stuff, like, you know, having this huge podcast, it's, it's all digital, right? Did you, do you ever find any challenges with being a maker where a lot of what you create is something that you don't actually get to hold in your hands? Yeah. Big time. You know, so all, all of my making as a kid was, it was all physical. 
It was working with my hands mm-hmm. and raw materials to create something. And funny enough, I think there may be a genetic element to some of this because I know my mom as a, as a kid was a craftsperson and a potter. So I, the whole first part of my life was all about the physical process of making. And that is still my favorite way, my favorite path for creation, my favorite channel. I painted, I built, I built stuff. Yeah. And as I, over the last really more than a decade now, 15 years or so, as I've moved to writing, to producing media, to being in the online space, still very much making, but like you said, it's not the physical act of creation nearly as much. And what I realized is over the last few years, I am so missing Mm -hmm. the physicality of the making process and actually committed to returning to it. So I've started painting more. I've started, you know, actually sort of working with my hands and drawing and illustrating more. And earlier this year, I sort of did something that I've wanted to do for a number of years. I want to say seven or eight years ago. I went out when I was writing one of my last books. I interview a lot of people when I'm I'm researching a book. And so I jumped on a plane out to San Diego. And then I drove inland a little bit to the compound where Bob Taylor started building one guitar at a time and now has this stunning, stunning guitar building like compound literally it's it is i think there's five or six or seven buildings I don't, have you been there because i before? have i have not but is this like tailor-made guitar is that the bob taylor yeah that's amazing yeah i mean they're beautiful Ugh. beautiful guitars yeah so i went out there because i wanted to interview bob because here's a guy that just wow. started literally tinkering and figuring out on his own as a kid in southern california and now has built a maybe the biggest handmade guitar company in the world. And I wanted to talk to him, find out about his journey and his process. And then he took me around this massive compound and showed me. I was literally drooling. Like I would walk <laughs> into the wood room and see 12 different types of wood and various, you know, and then I'd walk into the front room and I'd walk into the, the finish room. And I was, there was some, literally it was like something in my DNA was lighting up and saying, you need to get back to this. You mm. need to get back to this. And it was a big wake-up call, and it took me years to act on it because I kept getting pulled into this, the sort of the digital creation yep. space or the media creation space. But finally, I realized, at the, actually it was the end of last year, that I need to just put on my calendar some sort of substantial physical making experience because if I didn't build it into my calendar, it just was never going to happen. And I also realized that I have always loved the form and shape of acoustic guitars. And I've had a Jones probably since I talked to Bob to make one or to learn how to make one. And so I found a luthier, which is the fancy word for a guitar builder, who lived in Amish country and had a workshop, which is you know two and a half, three hours from me in New York City. And he was teaching people how to build guitars. Wow. And I reached out to him and I basically said, hey, can we create a format for this where you can teach me how to build it? And I spent half of the month of April this year or April of 2018 going back and forth between this guy's workshop in you know like literally an old sort of roadhouse that was converted into a guitar building workshop you walk out on the back deck and you're looking at cows and pastures <laughs> and I would go out there we'd work 13 hour days I went with a, an old friend of mine 13 hour days with a single short break for lunch I was dog tired at the end of the day my whole body like every cell in my body hurt my hands were beat up. I was beat up. I was 
like every nook and cranny was just completely coated with wood and wood dust and and i was the happiest person on the planet yes literally like i would work for 13 straight hours and i would blink and i would have no concept of time i was completely and utterly absorbed in a state of flow it's probably like i bet you get a really similar feeling when you're surfing right i absolutely do but it's just so interesting hearing you describe the maker and like how much it resonates with me something i do as a therapeutic process is I build Legos and it's just because I, that's right. I remember the giant thing that you have mm, built for your your event. (laughs) Exactly. And it's like, they're all over poor Chelsea. They're all over the house. They're, (laughs) they're in our bedroom, you know, they're in my office and it's simply like, I don't even care about them once they're done, which is kind of the funny thing. It's simply the process of kind of getting in that flow state, but like checking out and you know, What's nice about them is is I don't have to think. I just kind of follow the steps, but it's something with my hands and that that gets built. And that's why I asked too, like when, with a digital business, like sometimes you put so much into it and there's like, there's nothing to hold onto at the end. So yeah, no, what you said something really interesting too that I don't want to slip by, mm. which is that you don't even care about it once it's done. Yeah. And this is something interesting too, because I'm the same way. I mean, the guitar I built is a little bit different because now I get to play it. Now you get to make it. music with right. it. I mean, that's right. a whole nother creation. Right. But, you know, it's funny when, you know, I'm a number of books into being an author now. Mm-hmm. And the first time I got, you know, the very first time I got my first book from my, you know, like traditional author and the, you know, the publisher sends it to me and I get a case and I got the first case and I just kind of let it sit there for a week. And then eventually I opened it up. I picked up the book. I'm like, oh, cool, a book. <laughs> and so many other people I know, they're like, How, like, what's wrong with you? Like, are you some sort of, you know, like author sociopath that you don't care about this thing? Yeah. And I, and I was, but my answer was the same thing, which is that the thing that brings me so much joy, the thing that lets me express, fully express my essential nature is not, you know, like, is not the object at the end of the thing. It's the process. Totally. You know, it's the actual process of making. And once I'm done with that, I'm like, cool. You know, that's awesome. Now there's something that can go out into the world and hopefully help people. That's great. But it's not why I do it. I do it because I am wired to create. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I got, I, before we move on, I'm curious, what with the guitar, what did it start as? Was it just like, was it literally raw materials? Like here's a, here's a bunch of wood. It's not like, Hey, we've cut all the shapes and all you got to do is sand them and like, yeah, no, this was raw material. Oh my goodness. (laughs) This was, you know, I had to actually pick the wood about six weeks before I started the process because it has to be milled to it's sort of like it's basic form and just left to sit outdoors, not outside, but in, in the environment where you'll be building it. Because the wood actually has to acclimatize to so, you know, like the, the level of humidity. This isn't like the touristy, like training wheels, like you can build no. a guitar in a weekend. Kind of, like this is... No, I'm, I mean, I spent... So if you think about, and for anyone who's seen a guitar, you'll know there's the, the sort of like the curvy body of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a neck where you see the strings run along it. And the neck is this long thing. And sitting on top of the neck is generally a dark piece of wood with little metal things that go down it called frets. Well, the, the top of that dark piece of wood is maybe about a quarter of an inch thick slab. And when you first get it, it's just flat. You know, so when we first cut the shape, it's just a flat, it's like a long skinny rectangle. It's about a quarter, maybe three eighths of an inch thick. 
But what most people don't know is that when that is actually on a guitar, there's this very slight radius that runs across the entirety of that long slab. Maybe it's an 18-inch piece of ebony. And in my case, it was a 12-degree radius. So how do you get the radius in that? Well, I can go into a guitar you know, manufacturing place, and I can buy a finished you know, fretboard with the radius in it for not a lot of money. And that would have made the process a whole lot faster and easier. The way that we radius the fretboard was first we cut it. We cut the basic shape. Then we put it into a whole bunch of clamps. And then we got this giant sanding block that had a 12-degree radius already carved into it. And we put sandpaper, sticky sandpaper onto it. And then literally for eight straight hours, I took that sanding block and I was just pushing it forward and back and forward and back across the fretboard because ebony is actually an extraordinarily hard wood. So to actually get that radius and make it even, it literally takes a full day of going back and forth. That was probably the least fun day of the (laughs) entire thing. But yeah, this was, there were so many shortcuts that we could have taken. There Mm -hmm. were so many pre-made pieces that we could have bought. But for me, that's not what it was about. It wasn't about getting to the end product as quickly as possible. It was about doing the work to actually immerse myself in the physicality of the whole thing, regardless of what it took. That's so awesome. This is so, so cool. And then you have it. It's, I can see it hanging behind you and you, yeah. you play it and it like, and it works. That- yeah, it's funny because the first time I actually ever played it in front of anyone else, I actually played it on stage in front of 430 people. <laughs> wow. And I had no idea if this thing would just spontaneously combust while uh-huh. I was playing yep. it or not. It just falls apart. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I just need you to like stay together. Like I hope the glue holes, I just need five minutes. Uh-huh. That's all I, all I need. <laughs> and it's still there. So we're good. It is. We're good. This is awesome. Okay. So I'd love if we could go a deeper dive into the other eight drivers. Yeah. Yep. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip open my little notepad here mm-hmm. too, just to make sure I remember all of them. So we talked about the maker, right? The maker is all about the process of creation, the scientists driven to solve, whether it's puzzles, problems, whatever it may be. The next one is what I call the maven. And the work of the maven is all about learning. It's about knowledge acquisition. So the maven is a person who wakes up in the morning and all they want to do is learn. They want to study. They may have multiple PhDs or degrees. They may be taking continuing courses on the side they're constantly in the process of learning if you're in a job or in a large company the thing that's most important to you is that you have the opportunity to constantly grow to constantly learn to constantly acquire new knowledge and when you hit up against the wall where you feel like you've either exhausted a field or a topic or a job responsibility or whatever it may be and there isn't a real clear path to learning from you you start to grind to a stop. You lose your ability to be fully expressed and everything starts to become a bit numb and painful. Mm. So for the maven, you know, where a lot of other people would potentially, you know, engage in a learning process and get paid to do it, you know, a maven will actively seek out opportunities to learn and very often even pay for the luxury of doing it. The same way that most people would buy a finished guitar so they didn't have to do the work of making guitar. And I literally paid for the privilege of, yeah. of making something that is probably not one-tenth as good as something <laughs> I could have purchased for a fraction of the right, price. Right, right. Yeah. So that's the maven. Okay. The next behind that is the essentialist. And the essentialist is basically somebody 
who is driven to turn chaos into order, chaos into order. So a, an essentialist looks at large data sets, at numbers of different stuff, looks at disorganization, and there is a deep compulsion to make sense of it, to create systems, to create process, to create order around it. So very often this is a person who distills. So distillation is sort of the fundamental work of the essentialist. You'll find a lot of essentialists find themselves drawn to operational jobs where they're in charge of systems process to project management, where they take you know, like just chaos and madness and a thousand moving pieces and they build the systems and the process to make it all work. The essentialist is one of the sparkotypes that tends to show itself very early in life as well. Hmm. And one of the ways it tends to show itself is in stuffed animals. So I've had so many people who are essentialists tell me that as kids, they actually would organize their stuffed animals both by, by height order and by color. <laughs> Amazing. In their room. Yeah. Like the books in their room. You're like they'll be ordered there'll be some sort of ordering framework in the books in their room. Mm. Um, in fact the our head of ops for our company is an essentialist as a primary, which is a great thing to be. And she actually told me, she said when she was a kid, all of her stuffed animals were literally they were constantly lined up and adjusted by both color and by height order. So this is all about that energy. And what's so fascinating too, when you start to hear more of these is that some people hear this and say, wow, that is so me. And I love, love, put me in, in an opportunity to do this work. And I'm the happiest person in the world. Just go away. Don't tell me what to do. I'll figure it out. Somebody else will hear this and they'll think to themselves, I want absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with the work of this work. Day. So yeah. for me and the essentialist, that's actually the way I feel. Yeah. <laughs> like my brain just does not work that way. I am so happy to have people where that is their work mm. in my orbit, because mm -hmm. my brain is the, I, if anything, I create chaos. <laughs> right, a mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, Our I making. Mean, that's largely what happens in the process of making. So. Right. So it's good because it also, as you start to learn these things, you start to learn, you know, if you're investing your energy in building a company or a division or a product or a service or a career, whatever it may be, or if you're on a team where you're working towards something, you start to say, okay, so what are the roles that I need? And once you're aware of these core drivers, to the extent that you can staff something with people where like, you know that they are going to be innately driven to do the work, to do one particular type of work that needs to be done to make this thing happen, then it turns the whole notion of motivation on its head. Mm -hmm. Because now instead of trying to figure out how do I motivate this person, you know, which very often is some form of cat or stick, that whole question yep. essentially goes away because the motivation comes entirely from creating as clear a path as possible to be able to express the work of your sparkotype and then it's entirely innate. So it's really powerful. This is huge because that's exactly what was going through my brain as you started sharing these other drivers was how powerful this could be for building out your team. Yeah, totally. It's it's really when you know, we I've started to have conversations with larger companies about using this idea and some tools that we've developed around it for team balancing mm -hmm. and also just team building in the very beginning. And it's, it's really eye-opening because you can also use it as a bit of a diagnostic. And when things aren't working, you can kind of say, okay, so what's the work that needs to be done here? And who do we have staffed on this? And you'd be like, oh, wow, I don't have an essentialist and I don't have a scientist or maybe mm -hmm. I don't have this one other person. 
and that's why things are falling down. And I'm trying to force other people to do these things, but it's not intrinsic to what they want to do. Yeah, right person in the wrong role. And that, yeah. something else you said was really key was like, in our company, we have 15 employees now, which I don't call them employees, they're team members. Motivation isn't a thing. Like, I don't motivate. I don't want to try and motivate. There's nothing like trying to push them along. Like, we just find people that where we find out what, you know, without having this test, we've just done it through like trial and error and asking a lot of questions and listening, find out what do you love doing? What are you passionate about? And how do we design a role around that? And then what do you know? You get people that love what they do and you, I mean, you really don't need to motivate. Yeah, it's amazing. And beyond not needing to motivate externally, it also lets people, when you get somebody who is innately driven to do the work of their role or, or job, and then you make your job as the visionary or the, you know, the, the leader. Like if you make your primary job, then to remove obstacles to them being able to do that work. Yes. It's like magic. I mean, because then they, spend, they become hyper-satisfied, hyper-productive, mm-hmm. and they work in flow states where time fugues. And it's just like the most incredible outcomes happen. And they I, never leave because they're so happy. <laughs> that's, I mean, that is huge. And it's like the most simple thing is just remove anything. And sometimes it's, it's an external thing. Other times it's an internal thing. Like we've noticed just simple things where like they have a fear of making a mistake. And then we're like, well, what do you think is going to happen if you do make a mistake? Like, I don't know. I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to get fired. And it's like you remove those beliefs and those fears. And now they can just create not operating from fear. And they yeah, just fall in love, love with it. I'm so glad you brought that up too. Because a lot of times the obstacles are these internal things. And as you, I mean, I know just knowing you, I know that you're keenly aware of those things in a way that a lot of people aren't. But I think it makes a lot of sense to attune yourself to looking not just for those outer obstacles, but also, huh, I wonder if there's something internal that's tripping someone up. Yeah, yeah, totally. This is awesome. Okay, so. Cool. All right, so let's keep going down the list. Yeah. So next up we have the performer. The performer is, so this is really interesting. On the surface, you would say that the work of the performer is to perform. But what we're really talking about here is the work of the performer is to make any experience, any transfer of energy, of information, demonstrative and to illustrate it and to animate it in a way where whatever is trying to be transmitted becomes embodied and transferred and experienced in a level that brings it much more life and understanding. So when you think of performer, what a lot of people think initially is, oh, well, that's somebody who's up on stage or on TV or in movies or singing and dancing. And yes, you know, sure, those are you know, capital P performers. Those are people who have the job title of performer. But the truth is performers can exist in any domain of work, in any domain of life and find ways to be fully expressed. So for example, the performers, you know, if you are in an organization and your job is to sell, you know, your ability to actually move a person through a conversation in a way where the ideas you're offering, the solutions you're offering are animated and fully brought to life and conveyed in a way where somebody just completely understands it. There is a very strong performative aspect to that. You know, so what I found is that performers actually can do very well in traditional sales jobs. Hmm. because they bring something to it that a lot of other people don't because a lot of other people will come to that job and they'll say, okay, you know, my job is to understand your need and to check the bullets and convey why my solution satisfies your need. 
And if it does, logic says you will then purchase from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sure, that's part of what has to happen. But, you know, part of what happens also is a certain energy, is a certain animation, is a certain demonstrativeness. Is that I just made up the word demonstrative? No, no, that, no, I love that. Yeah. It's <laughs> great. You know, and that changes the context and the mm -hmm. dynamic, changes the social sort of texture of what's happening in an experience in a way that can be transformative and really animate your ability to help and to serve and to be of service and inspire somebody to understand this on a whole different level. What's interesting now too, so we've had a substantial number of people complete the assessment. Mm -hmm. So we have data from yeah. you know a fairly large data set already. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is that we've seen the performer of all 10 sparkotypes actually shows up the least. So of the spread across you know, the percentage spread for all 10 of these, the performer is the smallest slice of the sparkotype pie. But here's, I'm interested, so we're about to start to engage in second level research on this because we're going to go into sort of more deeper, more nuanced surveys because I have a hunch about this. And my hunch is this, what we're also seeing, because I've reached out to a whole bunch of people on this already, is that the performer also may well be the single most repressed sparkotype. Wow. Reason being, because simply sort of the behavior of the performer, very often you're told at a young age that it's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. That A, you know, tall poppy syndrome, you shouldn't yep. stand out, you shouldn't be the person in the room who's that person, you know, you know, that it's just you're it's too much attention on you. And the other thing that tends to lead to repression later in life is that very often a parent will have an association of, okay, so the only way that my kid is going to be able to express this source code is to be one of the classic performers, actor, singer, dancer. And, you know, so few of them are actually able to sustain themselves financially. I don't want that future for my child. So I'm going to in some way tell them that this is not a valid path of expression mm. for the essence of who you are. And that becomes embodied and that leads to repression. So it's really interesting. I think there's a much more nuanced, nuanced experience for performers and a much stronger potential for that to be repressed. So in some of the follow-on research that we're literally about to begin, I would not be surprised if we start to be able to tease out a realization that the performer is probably potentially a larger slice of the pie. Right. And the good news is, is that today there are so many more avenues and outlets so for the performers than just traditional Hollywood. Yeah. I think there's acting. literally every single sparkotype with very, very rare exception can be well expressed in nearly any field position or job. Yeah. And you know, something else is speaking of the word demonstrable. The only other person I've ever heard use that word before was Billy Mays, who was the mm. infamous pitchman. And yeah. he was, every time they were picking a product that they were going to do an infomercial on, it was like his litmus test, test, his criteria filter for making the decision of, are we going to sell this product or not? Was show me the demonstrability of it. Show me how we can demonstrate it. Where's the performance that the product can have? And he was like the ultimate performer. He would bring like, you know, a simple like household product to life and, you know, sell millions yeah. of it. And there's, there's one other interesting thing maybe we'll touch on with this around the performer, which is that we also tend to have an association of the performer as being very loud, very extroverted, very forward facing. Mm -hmm. And some are. Yeah. But you can also be a very a quieter, a gentler, 
a much more nuanced you know performer and be equally effective at making the job work you know just closing recently in new york city bruce springsteen had a year-long run with a very intimate show on broadway where he was playing like but just acoustic mm-hmm. with a guitar on a stage his wife would join him for one to two songs and he would just sit on a stool and storytell wow you know and stunningly stunningly compelling you know demonstrative moving alive it just but so the association with everything having to be big and loud and colorful and extroverted and forward facing is kind of our overlay of what we think a performer needs to be but in fact some of the most powerful performances that i've ever seen either in a traditional performance or in a boardroom or on a keynote stage have been very quiet intentional and deliberate that's so fascinating so what's uh what's our next one okay next up is the warrior and this is interesting too because this this is one that tends to have a very interesting overlay as well the warrior is about leadership so the work of the warrior is to organize and lead and you know this also tends to show itself very early in life so if you were the kid on the street when you were six years old like you go out on the block and you're like all right everybody come on like come to my front yard let's hang out on the step we've got a cool adventure we're going to go do, or we're going to organize a game of this, you know, like, or if you're, you know, all right, I'm going to put together five people and we're going to play our online gaming and I'm going to be like the captain who brings everybody together. This tends to show up very early in life as well. There is an interesting societal overlay that we tend to bring to the warrior as well, which is a very masculine energy. So when we think of the warrior, we think of very often you get a picture of masculine energy of Mm -hmm. a man of brazen, of forward-facing, of loud, of aggressive and hard-edged and fierce and dangerous. And in fact, there's nothing about the word warrior itself that implies that. It's a complete societal overlay. It's a bias. It's an assumption that we bring to it. You know, to say to organize and lead, there's nothing implied that there's a masculine energy to that. Totally. But there tends to be the societal assumption that that's how you have to lead. And it's complete fiction. You know, you can be an incredibly effective warrior by having a very different energy, similar to the performer. You can be very quiet. You can be nuanced. You can be introspective. You can lead from within or from the side. You can be very open and emotional. And this is equally, if not more powerful way to move into the work of the warrior, to do that work of organizing and leading. So sometimes, you know, when I've had this conversation with individuals and organizations, it's a matter of peeling that back and saying, because somebody immediately will get this, you know, they'll take the assessment, they'll say, well, it says I'm a warrior, but I don't know, that just doesn't resonate. And then I'll walk them through this process and I'll say, well, what is a warrior to you? And they'll, they'll sort of, they'll give this very hard edge masculine overlay. And I'll say, well, what if in fact, all these other traits can be equally if more effective as a way to lead? And they're like, oh my God, yeah. That completely describes me, that resonates on a very, very fierce level. And I'll tell them, well, well, that in fact is an equally valid expression of this, you know, like this deeper driver of the warrior. Wow. That's so fascinating. So it could be male right. or female. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in the interest of time, I'll, I'll keep us moving on these. Next up is the sage. So the sage mm. is driven to teach. The sage is about knowledge transmission first and foremost. So what's interesting is very often you'll find a sage where their shadow sparkotype is the maven. And you'll think, well, it's all about learning. But what they'll realize is their real drive for knowledge acquisition is that they want more to be able to teach. They want to have more to draw upon to be able to teach. They want to have a deeper level of mastery over a body of knowledge so they can turn around 
and they can transmit, they can transfer that wisdom to someone else and then see the illumination that happens when they actually stand in front of a group of people and teach them what they know. Wow. So the, the sage is all about teaching. And again, you know, that shows up in the classical jobs of professor and teacher all the time. But just like the other spark types, you can do the work of the sage in nearly any job, in nearly any profession. It's just about taking what you know and gaining the skills and the capacity to share it in a way, to share wisdom in a way that in some way lands with others and allows them to rise. I love so, that. Yeah, that's a super powerful one too. Next up, we have the advocate. The advocate is all about doing work where they're giving voice and power and representation to other beings or, or things that they perceive as being disenfranchised mm. in some way, shape, or form. Interesting here, so a lot of times when we think of an advocate, we think about somebody who has the title of advocate or activist. All very likely, you know, like very valid expressions. What's interesting here is that you don't actually have to be advocating on behalf of another person or group of people for you to be playing this role. You can be advocating on behalf of nature, on behalf of the planet, on behalf of trees. I have seen advocates really embrace their work and be fully expressed when they are championing ideas, championing ideas. So sometimes people will say, well, it says I'm an advocate, but I'm not really sure. And I say, you know, like we talk around it and then they realize, well, they're a huge champion of ideas that nobody else gives credence to. And they realize, oh, wow. Well, yeah, I mean, in that context, that's completely me. So sort of, you know, you want to take yourself away from the constraint of saying, well, this has to be me speaking up on behalf of other people. Say, no, it can be animals. It can be planets. It can be environments. It can be ideas. It's all about the act of being a voice of, mm -hmm. of championing something or someone else. So advocate is really something that we're seeing, obviously, you know, like these days with a lot of sort of political change in the world. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of people stand in this space. Um, to left, we have the advisor. Mm -hmm. And the work of the advisor is to guide others through a process towards an outcome. And you may ask yourself, well, how is that different than being a leader? And the fundamental difference is a leader is generally one of the group of people who is saying, come with me and we're going to do this together. And I'm equally vested in achieving this particular outcome with you. This is ours. We take ownership of it. The advisor stays on the outside. The advisor is the coach, the mentor, the, you know, like the person who says, okay, here's something that you or a team or a group of people want to accomplish. Maybe in business, you know, you want to launch a business and scale it to X. I'm going to play the role of being with you, understanding who you are, what you need, your limitations, your constraints, your resources and abilities, and very clearly where you want to go. And I'm going to play the role of helping guide you and mentor you through this process as you work towards this deeply desired outcome. It's not my outcome. I'm not the person who's leading you on a day-to-day -day basis, but I'm going to work with you from the outside to mentor or to coach or to guide you along the way. And advisors very often find themselves in this position in all parts of life, by the way, where some of these tend to express themselves more readily in the context of, you know, like in quotes, work. Mm -hmm. Advisors very often are the people where they're doing this in every domain of their life. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're doing it with friends. They're doing it with lovers. They're doing it with teams. They're doing it with like sports, whatever it may be. You know, you see this very, very broadly applied across all domains of life. The final one is the nurturer. 
and the work of the nurturer is to give care very often in a more intimate way. And when I say intimate, I don't mean sexually intimate. I just mean intimate in terms of individual. Mm-hmm. You know, So it is somebody who generally has a very high experience of empathy, both cognitive and emotional empathy. They understand and see other people's suffering. And on some level, they feel it on an emotional level. And that moves them to want to, in some way, step up and become involved in a very hands-on, a very personal way to help relieve suffering, to give care in the name of making things better. And we see this expressed in a lot of very classical fields that would be involved in that. But the nurturer, again, can be expressed in nearly any particular domain because the nurturer very often works from a place of such deep empathy and direct service one of the big things that the nurturer has to be aware of is emptying themselves out so the nurturer has to be very attuned to the need to actually really focus on filling their own tank and doubling down on self-care because they're generally it's such a give oriented it's such an outward and outflow oriented sparkotype that it is very easy for you to basically just end up completely emptying yourself in the name of being of service to others. So, you know, the way that I shared, the order that I shared all 10 of these with you today was sort of across a spectrum where we started out where the earlier parts tend to be more internally focused and also internally satisfied. And then as we move across it, it tends to be more externally focused and more externally satisfied. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Very cool. And do you feel like a lot of people start to get a sense of of what their their sparkotype is as they just hear these descriptions? Because I thought I did. And then I'm just like, I'm now more confused than ever because I was like, there's like four or five there. And the truth is, you know, we probably all have, you know, multiple ones of these show up on certain levels in in ourselves. Yeah. You know, um, but there is a primary. There's like a number one. Yeah. there tends to be, you know, like there tend to be one or two when you really sort of are asked a series of, of prompts and primes mm-hmm. that will rise up to the top and you realize, oh, well, yeah, like these are the things that are part of me and they're things that I do and the things that I'm good at, the things that I enjoy. But if I could really choose just the work of one of these and know that everything else that needed to be covered was covered, this is what I would focus on. There's also a bit of FOMO that tends to happen with the archetypes, <laughs> which is like, well, but I want to do that. And right. I want to be the person who does this. And I want to be the person who does this. And this sounds like it could be fun, or maybe I should be involved in this, or maybe there's more glory in this one, you know? And so we tend to look at them and we're like, oh, and we were compelled almost to not be entirely honest with ourselves mm. because we don't want to miss out on either the work of or the perceived glory of the outcomes of some of the other ones. But, and that's why when we built the assessment, we we're really trying to figure out, okay, so how do we build this in a way where we're creating prompts and questions that tries to cut past that and get to a place where we can get the purest possible answer. But yeah, you know, we, we are some blend of a, a lot of these different things, but I have found that by and large, probably with very rare exception, there are the one or two that really sort of more strongly predominate. Yeah. And I still haven't figured out those, but I've at least narrowed it down to about four. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I'll take the test and I want to invite everyone listening to take the test. Jonathan is the the best link. Goodlifeproject.com forward slash spark test. Yeah. Or or actually probably the easier way to do it is just if you go to sparkatype.com and that's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E dot com. 
Perfect. Um, that will be a sort of like the, the most direct path to get there. And we will link that up in the show notes for you guys as well. It's, what is it, like 30 questions? It's actually 50 plus. 50. So people may get a different number of questions. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is that is we've actually built a dynamic algorithm. Oh, that, I like that. Uh, based on how you answer, as it gets closer to the end, it may adjust along the way. Interesting. So some people may get 50, some people may get 52 in order to really create an outcome or, or give you, you know, to be able to assign a, a type profile mm-hmm. that feels like it's really, it's right. So I, I, before we wrap up, and I do want to be mindful of time, I want to just, I think where I want to go is like, okay, we're going to take the test and we're going to get clarity on our core driver. And what does that start to give us direction on? Like, is it like, this is the type of work you should be doing or this, like, how do people start to use this, I guess, yeah. in daily life? It's a great question. So fundamentally, you know, I'm a maker but I, and I love wisdom, but I'm always about creating tools that are useful in some way, shape or form. Like, I don't want to build anything unless I feel like it's going to help. Mm-hmm. So step one is actually just to say, okay, so identify what this deeper driver is for you. And then step two is when you start to say, okay, so this is my sparker type. Now you go a bit deeper and say, okay, the work of my sparkotype is this. And once you start to understand the work of your sparkotype, then you start to ask, okay, what are the tasks, what are the tools, and what are the topics that allow me to express the work of my sparkotype? And you begin a process of inventorying those things. And then, you know, like really sort of like easy first steps in are to begin to sort of scan your work and scan your non-work, scan your life for moments and opportunities where you can engage with those three different sort of like ways to express the work of your spark type. And you start small, tiny little mm-hmm. actions rather than big disruptive things. It's funny because sometimes people take this and they'll have this immediate feeling that, wow, the work that I'm doing right now is completely misaligned with yeah. the essential nature of who I am. Let me just blow it all up and like start over. Do not do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely do not do that. You know, one of the big lessons of the sparkotypes is that when we're really attuned to it, most of us can actually start to approach the work that we're doing differently in a lot of different ways and figure out how to do it in, in a way where we can come much more alive by being much more intentional without have, ever having to really blow anything up. There may come a time for a small percentage of people where you really optimize and transform your current work, but still not getting everything you need and you may want to you know, think about something more disruptive. But if, if that is your sort of like immediate feeling, you know, after you take the assessment, don't do it. <laughs> so, but that's a really great piece of advice there too. Cause that was a question that was in the back of my mind. What if you discover, oh my goodness, I'm like just totally driving in the wrong direction in my life. A lot of times, you know, whatever career or situation you're in, you can just change the context yeah. I- without needing to change that role or your job. And yeah. that, that alone can... It, it can make a really huge difference, yeah. you know, and we're, you know, as we are, we continue to refine the assessment and, and we are committed over the next, you know, like probably five years now as we deepen into the research and we're starting to now develop more tools to help people actually take mm. action on this Very because cool. we're getting a lot of questions. People are asking us, okay, so this is incredibly eye opening. And then they ask a question you asked, which is what do I do with this? And I can give basic advice. But, you know, I'm much happier if I can actually provide tools and techniques and programs where people can say, okay, 
now I actually have a process where I understand, you know, like, how do I do this exploration where I can integrate this into the work that I'm doing? And then how, how do I zoom the lens out and maybe look at a broader set of orientations, drivers, and preferences where I can really look at the work that I'm doing right now and understand what are all the different ways, the nuanced ways that I can change the context, the drivers, the tasks, the t- you know, all this different stuff so that I can actually sort of operate differently without having to just blow everything up and really get what I need out of the work that I'm doing. And when I use the word work, by the way, just as a final thought, I'm not always talking just about the thing you get paid to do. Right. You know, for I'm talking about the bigger context of there's the work you get paid to do, there's the stuff that you do on the side just because you're compelled to do it. And when you look at the broader blend of those things, there's almost always a way to be much more intentional about the way that you're doing them and be able to really get to that place where you wake up every day, you feel like you're, you know, you're on purpose, there's a deep sense of meaning, you're engaged, you're fully expressed, and you, know, you can spend a lot of time in that blissed out state of flow. And there was a phrase you used at the beginning of the episode just about creating a more aligned life. Yeah. And um, I, think, I think that's so relevant and that's so important. And so this can help you find that. Now, I wanna ask one more question. And I don't know if you know the answer to this. I don't know if this is a question you've been asking yourself, but it is like my curious mind. When we look at these core drivers and, I, and if I were to you know, find out what mine is, which I will when I take the test, have you started to look at like, well, where does that come from? Like you even talked about, you know, you're wondering if yeah. growing up and like you get it from your environment, your mom doing crafts and stuff. Is that what created the maker or is that were you born that way? Is it a, is it nature and nurture? What, what are your, yeah, man, man, you have landed on like the question <sighs> of the ages. right yeah. there. And short answer is yes. I have thought about this <laughs> so much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, the more nuanced answer is I have no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there are different schools of thought. There are people that say if you're, you know, if you're a particularly faith driven person, you may say that, you know, like whatever you believe in as your sense of source, you know, like establish this as your purpose when you got on the planet and your job is to discover it and live it. If you're a practical person or a science or genetics based person, you may say that there is some sort of, you know, neurological wiring that's that's controlled partly by just fate and your or fortune partly by you know whatever traits are passed by you you know like genetic and epigenetic and Mm -hmm. somehow your brain is wired in a way where you're particularly drawn to this one particular one specific expression of output and of energy and there are others who may say that you know your early experiences environmentally may in some way turn something on or turn something off What's interesting to me is I've, I've grappled with that question a lot. I've talked to a lot of people about it, and I've talked to researchers in all the different fields. I've talked to you know, like devout people of faith. I've talked to hardcore academics and scientists. I've talked to grounded theory researchers who are extracting things from what they see practically on the ground. And I've talked to you know, social scientists and, and behavioral psychologists about the influence of environment and genetics. And I have never received an entirely satisfying answer mm-hmm. from anyone. And I think the good news is, is it doesn't really matter. Yeah, in the end, and that's what I've come to. I'm like, yeah. this, yes, it's a curiosity for me. I'll yeah. probably keep deepening into it. But in the end, yeah, it kind of doesn't really matter. And do you think this is something that these core drivers change through our lifetime? That's the other sort of bit of data that I've been diving into right now. Mm-hmm. My early answer right now is going to be no with a very small number of rare circumstances. Mm-hmm. What I've seen 
is that for most people, it tends to manifest very early in life. By the time we reach adulthood, it pretty much is what it is. Yeah. You know, it's unlikely to change in a meaningful way. What are the things that may disrupt that? Big traumas from what mm. I've seen. Anything that if, I mean, if you go through a trauma on the level that it literally changes your identity, it changes yeah. the nature of the person that you are, can these things then change along with it? I'm sure they can. But from what I've seen, barring any sort of substantially traumatic experience that in some way, shape, or form has a really meaningful impact on changing not just this, but like much bigger parts of your identity, it tends to stay largely consistent from what I've seen. I will keep deepening into this research for years. And now that we're public with the assessment, now we have the ability to start to track data over a period of years and begin to you know, over, over, you know, five or 10 years start to develop longer term realizations about this. But from the work that I've already done, I have seen very few circumstances where I've seen this actually change in a meaningful way, barring some sort of bigger traumatic. It's so fascinating. I kind of like hearing that because, uh, my take on Myers-Briggs and the philosophy that I hold to is that your type is your type and that's, it doesn't change. Although people definitely describe, Oh, I used to be this and now I'm that. And I always challenge that and, and say, you know, each letter on the type has a spectrum. And so when I was in high school, I was very, very introverted. Now I'm less introverted, but that doesn't make me an extrovert. And it's kind of like, you know, if you were born right-handed and you learned how to use your left hand, that's great, but you're still right-handed. You know. Yeah, and I think also societal expectations and skill right. acquisition totally. can, can, can convince us yes. that they can either make us better at expressing things that are not our intrinsic drivers and kind of almost convince us like, well, maybe that's our thing just because, you know, that's more societally accepted to be that thing yeah. or I've developed the skill to be good at it. Yes. But if we're really being honest, like left to our own, if nobody was judging us, and we knew somebody else was able to do that thing we had skill at, that we would actually revert to this other thing. I think there are a lot of things that tend to obscure it to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And when I hear people like, oh, I was this, but now I'm this, what I tend to think is actually over time, your assumptions about, you know, your sort of behavioral and societal overlays have changed about what's okay and what's not okay. And your level of competence and skill has changed in a way which would lead you to answer the question differently and maybe more honestly over time as you've gotten more comfortable with who you are. Totally. I totally get that. So this is so fascinating. I think it's so relevant and so valuable, especially for for entrepreneurs. You know, I think I experience a lot of entrepreneurs or starting entrepreneurs, they get really excited about all the material side of things like big numbers and, and even just like the ego driven of like having an audience and following. And then they start down that path and realize that it is not aligning with what's really important to them, what really matters, what's really driving them. And what's the point? What's the point of living a life unaligned? That's where you're giving away your life force to stuff that's not even giving you anything back. It's not what you're, you know, what you call your source code, like your DNA. What's the, what's the point? And to learn more, you know, know thyself, to learn more about who you really are and what drives you, I think is, is paramount. It's crucial. I love it. So the link again is just, was it just sparkatype.com? 
Yeah, just sparkatype.com. There's a little E in the middle there too, sparkatype.com. That will take you right to the assessment and with about 50 plus questions, it doesn't, I can't imagine it takes more than like 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, right about that for most people. This is awesome, awesome. Well, Jonathan, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing this. This is so exciting and so fascinating. Do you have any final words, final thoughts before we wrap this up and call it complete? Well, first, just thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. It's so much fun talking about this. It's every time I, sh- I share it and you ask such such really well-formed questions, it helps me go deeper into the work and better understand what we're doing. And really just final thoughts would be piggybacking on what you said. There are a million ways to build a career. There are a million ways to build a company. And there are a lot of different metrics that people will offer you as the thing which is defined as success. But I would really invite everyone to think about a core piece of your definition of success as being an understanding of who you really are at the level of essence Mm -hmm. and creating something that serves as the most unencumbered channel to express that part of yourself in the work that you do in the world, whether it's the work that you get paid for, whether it's the work that you just do in all other parts or whatever the blend is. I love that. So ladies and gentlemen, go to sparkatype.com, take the assessment. And then what I'm going to ask you to do is to post it on Instagram in a story or a in your feed and tag both myself at James Wedmore and Jonathan Fields. Is, is it good life project or Jonathan Fields? What is your Instagram uh, handle? It's, it's either one actually. Oh, perfect. You just do me because then I'll, I'll be, I'll be sure to see it. It's always fun for me to see sort of like the different things that are coming up. Definitely, definitely tag us both and get the word out about this test and let us know uh, what you came out as in the assessment, which one of the 10 core drivers did you, uh, come out as so thank you again jonathan this is amazing i can't wait to take it i'm gonna have my whole team take it as well including chelsea i kind of already have a a theory on what all of them are so (laughs) we'll see if i'm right and thank you to our listeners for tuning into another episode we'll see you all next time here on the mind your business podcast Did you know eight out of 10 businesses fail within their very first 18 months? I believe being an entrepreneur means unlearning everything that we've been taught our entire lives about what it really means to be successful, which is why I've created a brand new audio program entitled Activate. I want to show you how to think, act, and behave like the successful entrepreneur that you were meant to be so you can step into the vision that you have for your life and your business. And the best part is, this program is yours absolutely free. To register right now, simply visit www.jameswedmore.com forward slash activate, and we can get started right now.